Well, good morning again, and what a great song to transition into what we're going to be talking about this morning. Have thine own way, Lord. Written by a lady by the name of Adelaide, by the way, Adelaide Pollard. It's a great song. Well, we've been in James chapter 4 for a little while now, and we've seen James's challenge to us, really in the whole book, to exhibit our faith in our daily lives. Faith without works is dead, James says. Basically, it doesn't matter necessarily. Now, profession is important, but it doesn't matter when it comes to who you are. If all you do is proclaim Christ, if you don't live it out in your daily lives, right? If you're truly a believer, to put it in a different way, then there will be a change in your life, in your speech, in your actions, how you treat others, right? That's the things we've been emphasizing over the last few months as we've been going through the book of James. And that's why we can say clearly that the main theme of James is faith without works is dead. Faith without actions. Is it really, truly saving faith if there's no corresponding obedience in your life? And so James is continuing that, that general thought here. He's been addressing submission, and he basically says when it comes to worldliness, the key to fighting worldliness is God's grace. And we, we have a, a greater grace that is available to us verses 7 through 10, as we submit to God, as we humble ourselves before the Lord, God gives a greater grace, a grace that we're able to overcome the world, the indwelling sin, able to overcome Satan himself. Well, James has dealt with last week a group of people who weren't submissive to God, and they were judging each other judging motives, looking at preferences as as the standard and judging others by their own preferences. And then they were backbiting, they were slandering each other. And so James moves on to another issue of submission, and he deals with the issue of the sovereignty of God, really, in your life. And I've titled today's sermon, today's message, Acknowledging the Sovereignty of God. And what we see is that James is calling for an attitude of submission. He wants you to bring every aspect of your life before the Lord. He wants you to submit your intents, your desires, your purposes, your plans, all to the Lord. And so even though these believers acknowledged Christ, he wanted to challenge them and, by effect, challenge you, to integrate all aspects of your life with your faith and not hold anything back. So the question is, in your plans, in your plans regarding your children, your holiday trips, your financial stewardship, your job, did you spend time at all seeking the Lord's direction in those things? Now, we we have an expression in the U.S., and sometimes idioms don't always translate, but we have an expression that when things don't go our way, we we say our plans fall through. 
It's kind of a general expression. I'm sure it translates, you can imagine, if something doesn't happen the way you want it or your plans don't take place, we say that your plans fell through. Well, I read the other day of an inmate in the Jackson County Jail. He worked out an elaborate escape plan. And what he did, he climbed up into the ceiling through a storeroom and he he crawled on top of the ceiling tiles. But what his elaborate plan, excuse me, failed to take into account was his weight upon those tiles. And after traveling a, a few meters, he crashed through the feet of three officers who were standing there watching him as he crunched the tiles across the ceiling. Now, in effect, you could literally say that his plans fell through, right? So James confronts these believers for making plans that didn't involve God, making plans and and living their lives as if God didn't exist and God doesn't matter. You see, James isn't condemning planning. It's important to plan. Right? If, you're, if you're working at a job or a business, you have to have some measure of planning. It's wise stewardship. Even in your own life, you need to have some measure of financial uh, stewardship, financial planning in your life. Right? We plan things regarding our families and our, and our kids. There's nothing wrong with planning. But James is condemning a planning or an attitude of presumption. An attitude that lives your life by your own self-confidence, by your own abilities, by your own desires, without about integrating God fully into your life. How easy it is, even as Christians, to go about our daily lives without bothering to take even the, the minutia of our lives before the Lord, even those little things. And so James isn't condemning planning, but he wants you to have plans and he wants you to make plans and live your life with the right mindset. And so today we're going to acknowledge, or James wants you to acknowledge God's sovereignty over your life. And you do that in three ways. You do it with the rejection of an attitude of presumption. You adopt an attitude of submission and you realize that This presumptive attitude is actually sinful. And so let's go ahead and look at the text, and then we'll dig in. We're going to be looking at James chapter 13 through 17 this morning. Verse 13. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. Therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. So the first attitude, or the first thing that James wants you to see, is he wants you to reject an attitude of presumption. He starts out with with basically believers, or these believers, and he's speaking to believers. He says, believers who have the illusion of control. There are specific businessmen here that he's addressing. And in these, the, the Jews of this time, this is primarily a Jewish church, and they would pursue business opportunities all throughout the Roman Empire. In fact, if you read through the book of Acts, Paul meets who? He meets Apollos, he meets Aquila and Priscilla, fellow business 
people, right? He meets many Jews, right? He goes to a synagogue in every city. So Jews have spread out around the Roman Empire seeking business opportunities. And so James is addressing them, and he's not, by the way, he's not condemning making a profit. He's not condemning business. He's not condemning capitalism, right? He's not saying that profit is a bad thing. In fact, profit is encouraged in scriptures. We, we make a good use of the resources that God's given us, right? Something that you have, that you make, that you sell has value, right? As an entrepreneur, you put time into it. There's nothing wrong with making a profit on those things. Businesses don't have any other purpose to exist unless they make a profit. So profit is not a bad thing. And James is not condemning the idea of business or capitalism or, or, uh, or making a profit here. What he's condemning is the attitude behind it. Once again, like plans in themselves aren't bad. It's just the, the, the how we plan and the attitude that we have towards the world. And by the way, this applies to all believers. It's not just these businessmen because this attitude we all are guilty of. And I want you to notice all the assumptions, right? When I say it's an illusion of control, there's a lot of assumptions going on right here, right? Let's look at these assumptions. What, there's an assumption, first of all, about time. He says, come now, you who say, today or tomorrow. So they're pretty certain that they're going to leave either today or tomorrow. They're ready. They're ready to go, right? There's an assumption there, right? As we know, we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. So they're making a, a, a huge assumption. There's an assumption about the location. He said, we will go to such and such and city. And James adds this such and such in the Greek to be a general term. Not going, it's not a specific example. He's given a general example. They, they've already decided that they're going to a particular place. They're ready to go. They've got it all worked out. And notice he says that, they're going to travel there. We will, we will go, or we will, in the, in the Greek, it's travel to such and such a city. Now, in an age where travel was extremely dangerous, just ask Paul, as he was on the Mediterranean Sea and was shipwrecked at Malta through a storm, travel was dangerous, either by ship or even by foot. There were robbers on the road. Unless you marched along with a Roman contingent, there was always dangers. And so they're making lots of assumptions. We're going we're to go today or tomorrow. We're going to go and travel to this city. right? And the other assumption is they're going to have an activity. They're going to engage in business. They're going to spend a year there and do these things. You see, they, they've got all these intricate plans worked out. They have all these assumptions. And, and then they even have a goal. They say, we're going we're to make a profit you see, they're, they're self-assured, like we're going to travel there, we're going to leave tomorrow, the next day, and, and we're going to go, and we're going we're gonna to get there, and we're going to spend a year there, and we're going to make a lot of money. They've got all this worked out. See, all those assumptions that they're making, they, they've thought it through, and they're, they're ready to go. When I was little, I used to watch this cartoon in the show in the 80s, in the 80s, shows my age, and it was, uh, it was He-Man and the Masters of the Universe. Now, I'm not going to talk about the cartoon and its merits, but uh, that, that phrase, the masters of the universe, kind of stuck with me. And, and, and as I thought about these businessmen, these Christians, they were acting like masters of their own universe. They, they had all this worked out, but yet there was, there's no, no mention of God in this, right? They're depending on their own abilities, their resources, Right? There's assumptions here. It's an illusion because people love to feel, we all love to feel that we're in control. 
And I call that an illusion because you even hear people say that, oh, I'm a perfectionist. Well, we all know there's only one perfect man, Jesus Christ, and we're not Him, right? There's only one man that completely obeyed God's law in every aspect of His life. Jesus Christ. And so we think about perfectionists, what it is, a perfectionist is someone who, who wants to be in control of their environment. Because a, a controlling person is a fearful person, right? They're, they're afraid. And, and that, those things that, that they try to manipulate and organize, or they're trying to keep things within their quote-unquote control because it gives them a measure of security. But that, that control is an illusion, and these merchants were presumptuous in the thing, thinking that they could control all these factors. They, they assumed much. They presumed much. In effect, they acted like practical atheists. Right? They might proclaim Christ, but they lived their lives without any involvement of His Lordship in their lives. So practically speaking, they acted no different than those around them. They just made general assumptions about all the things going on in their lives. You see, there are plenty of things that can give us an illusion of security outside Christ. But that's just what they are. They're illusions. And think about it. Any moment those things that, that give you a measure of security can be taken away. If you don't believe me, read the book of Job. Right? At any moment, family, finances, home, any of those things can be taken away in a moment. It's a false security. But in reality, there's, there's one person that is absolutely secure. Right? One of the things I teach my daughter, at times she's, she's afraid at night as she's sleeping. And I, we recite Psalm 46, verse 1, God is my refuge. He's my strong tower I can run into. He's my strength. He's my help in times of need. Why do I fear? You see, God alone is the, is the refuge. God alone is the security, the unchanging nature of God. We can count on. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so all of these, these believers here, these businessmen, they're, they're making assumptions in verse 13. And James has laid out all these assumptions where he continues and he says in verse 14, Yet you do not know what your life will be like. Sorry, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. So James just basically bluntly asked them, Don't you understand the reality of life? He says, Don't you know you can't know the future? You don't know what tomorrow will be like. Now, how many of you can predict the future, right? We all laugh because it's absurd. So then dealing with the uncertainties of life, only God can know the future. And yet James is saying, look, you, you're, you're making all these plans, but tomorrow may be totally different. Think about my sister-in-law. My sister-in-law was planning to visit Australia. She wanted to visit us in June of this year. When she made those plans last year, there's, there's no way that would be interrupted, right? There's no possible way that she wouldn't be able to make that journey. But then what happened? <laughs> right? We're living in the midst of it. COVID, how unexpected. None of us could have foreseen the way our circumstances are today, right? Just imagine what, I mean, six months ago, 
seven months ago, at the beginning of the year, we weren't even thinking about how things were going to be today. James says, look, you can't know the future. Proverbs 27.1, do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring forth. How true is that? You see, these believers were acting presumptuously regarding the future. They are confident in their health. They're confident in their wealth. They're confident in their plans. They're confident in their themselves. You know, once again, James isn't condemning plans for the future. We always have to make plans. But James is, is writing this to, to show them that they're making presumptions upon the Lord. It's interesting when you think about James writing this letter to the Jewish Christians because he's writing this around 45 AD. In roughly 20, 25 years, the Romans would come in because of the Jewish revolt and completely destroy the temple and destroy Jerusalem. An estimated over a million Jews were killed in those Roman wars. Then later on, within a hundred years, there would be another rebellion and the Romans fed up would finally disperse the Jewish people completely throughout the Roman Empire. In fact, they banned any Jewish people from living in Jerusalem. They actually renamed Jerusalem and called it Aelia Capitolina and made it a Roman colony. They even built a temple to Jupiter on the site of the Jewish temple. And that's the way it existed for a thousand years. You see, we don't know what a day is going to be like. Even unbelievers recognize this. Why do we have so many people pursuing longevity at all costs? Right? They, they, they want to live forever. You know, you hear these, these rich guys and they, their, their idea is, well, let's go into space because that's the future of humanity. Or, or we want to cryogenically freeze ourselves so that, you know, technology catches up in, a, in 100 years or 500 years. We'll, we'll be able to continue our lives. Unbelievers understand that they can't know the future. They understand the truth that, what, we all die. And that's what James says. He says, not only do, are you, why are you saying... You don't know what your, li- or what your life is going to be like. You don't know what tomorrow is going to be like. But he basically asked the question in verse 14, what is your life? And what's the nature of life? Life is more than just these physical elements, right? The nature of life is, is there's a spiritual aspect to life. That's James's point. When we make plans and we, we, we want to do things in this life, we need to consider the spiritual element. Right? Consider what's good for us in a whole-hearted, whole-body way. Not just what's good for the flesh, but what's good for the soul, what's good for our eternity. Because just because you can't see the soul doesn't mean it's not there. Right? You can't quantify the soul. But we know it exists. And so as we think about the physical, we must think about the spiritual as well. So James is confronting them and he's saying, what is your life? But one thing that he makes a, a great point, he says, you are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. All right, we all understand vapor. Right, we have uh, June gloom in Southern California. 
And it's, it, you get it every morning, you get the, where the moisture comes in off the cold Pacific Ocean, and you get like a gloomy, low clouds, kind of misty, hazy, and sometimes you can see the smog, and it's a little bit brown, but it exists until about midday, afternoon, when the sun kind of burns it off. We call it June gloom, and it's, it's there for a whole month. We get the idea of mist. Psalm 39.4, Lord, make me to know my end. And what is the extent of my days? Let me know how transient I am. Psalm 39, 5. Behold, you have made my days as handbreadths, and my life as nothing in your sight. Surely every man at his best is a mere breath. Handbreadth is basically from here to here. So life is a handbreadth. I remember going skiing with my friends when I was younger. We loved to go, go snow ski. I remember this particular time we went skiing and it was really cold. Now, don't ask me to do the translation in the Celsius. I'm not there yet. But it was basically 10 below zero, excuse me, 10 below freezing, which is about 20 degrees, 22 degrees Fahrenheit. I'm going to do the translation, sorry. Some of you that are smart can do it in your heads and tell me later. So it was really cold. It was so cold we all wore masks over our faces. Because it, it keeps our face warm. It's so cold. But one of the things that was interesting is that you normally see your breath escape and you know, it goes and flies into the atmosphere. But it was so cold that our breath was literally freezing. The moisture was freezing on our masks. So periodically we had to take our mask off and wipe the, the ice off the mask and put it back on. So you get the idea, James is saying. Life is a vapor. It's here today. It's quickly gone. Right? You think about all the people who have ever lived right? We, those that, the names that you could come up with in your head at any given moment, most likely they're prominent people. Napoleon, maybe the Pharaoh Ramses that built the pyramids. You think about these things, but we really don't know anything about them. Now, some of the Napoleon and some of the guys that lived after him, we know from history books. But what about the common soldiers or the common people? We don't know anything about them. Life is here for a little while and then it's gone. And James wants you to realize that presumptuous or being presumptuous about your life and future are wrong. Even believers, as I said earlier, recognize and they know that the future, it cannot be foretold and that life is transient. For us, I like the Westminster Catechism. It says that we have a purpose our purpose is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. You see, get, living for God's glory, living for His honor and His reputation is our best good. And if we live for God's glory, then we're living for what? Our own good. And so when we, we, we're not merely to exist, we're not merely to seek pleasure, we're to live for God's glory. And that's a rejection of the presumptuous attitude. If we're living for God's glory in every aspect of our life, then of course we're going to go to God and ask Him, Lord, is this your will? Have God involved in our plans, our desires. We reject that presumptuous attitude. It's a life without God. Think about a life without God as a believer. What a disappointing life. Nothing satisfies. It is said that when the ancient emperors were crowned in Constantinople, that the, the royal mason would bring to them several different marble slabs so that they could pick the marble slab that would be their tombstone as a reminder that life is short. 
Believers, we have to reject this presumptuous attitude and, and, reject, and, and realize the reality of life. We can't see the future. We can't know the future. And life's pretty short, right? James continues and he says, not only do we, we reject an attitude of presumptions, but we, we adopt an attitude of submission. Look in verse 15. He says, instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will do this or do that. Now, James, when he says instead, he's offering us an alternative. An alternative to those plans, those presumptuous plans in verse 13. It's not just enough to recognize that life is fleeting and we can't predict the future. right? Unbelievers recognize that. There's more to it. He says instead, we have to show a mindset that is dependent upon God. Right? So we reject a worldly mindset and we adopt the right mindset. That takes all your hopes and your desires and your dreams and you, you offer them up to the Lord and you what? You seek His will, knowing that His will is good. I, genuine believers, by the way, have a desire to do God's will. Psalm 40, verse 8, I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. Psalm 143, 10, teach me to do your will. For you are my God. Let your good spirit lead me on level ground. Mark 3, 35, for whoever does the will of God, this is Jesus, he is my brother, sister, and mother. You see, it's a desire to align yourself with God's will in all aspects of your life. And just really quickly, I'd like to talk a little bit about God's will because we make it a mystical thing sometimes. Oh, I want to go God's will. How can I know God's will? Well, God's will is revealed first and primarily in His Word. It's God's will that you'd be reconciled to Him. In James chapter 1, verse 18, James says that it is what? In the exercise of His will, He brought you forth by the word of truth. It's God's will that you be reconciled. God willed you to, to be His child. Ephesians 1, 4, you were chosen in Him before the foundation of the world. This will never change. If you're a true believer, you will persevere to the end. Jordan, that said of persevere. Your, your position in Christ is secure. John 3.40, for this is the will of God that everyone who looks upon the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life and I will raise Him up on the last day. That's God's will. It's also God's will that you be controlled by Him. You submit yourself to Him. Ephesians 5.17 and 18, therefore do not be foolish but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not get drunk with wine for that is dissipation but what? Be filled by the Spirit. Instead of being controlled by alcohol, bad example, good example is controlled by the Spirit of God. Or to be controlled and dominated. So it's God's will for you to be reconciled, to be controlled. It's God's will for your sanctification, right? That you'd be holy. Hebrews 12, 14, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, right? So to be sanctified, be more like Christ. It's God's will for you to give thanks in all things. Romans 8, 28, God works all things for our good. What's that good? That we be conformed to the image of Christ. 
1 Thessalonians 5.18, we give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. So that's, that's an aspect of God's will. So everything in our life, if we're reconciled, if we're controlled by Him, if we're, being, we're looking to be sanctified, to be more like Christ, we're, we're giving thanks. It shows a dependence and a submission to God. Now, if you've got that attitude and those things are governing those principles and the Holy Spirit's governing your life, then the things that come into your life, you're able to to filter those desires and those plans through what you know to be God's will. If you're looking to get married, you meet a a spouse, I mean a spouse, you know, a woman or a man, depending on which sex you already are, and and you're thinking about marrying them. If they, if they don't hold to a, a biblical view of marriage, if they aren't a believer, if they're going to lead you to, to, to be immoral, then that's not God's will. You think about all these aspects. Is this going to further my sanctification or is it going to feed my fleshly desires? You filter the things in our life through God's Word to what we know to be God's will. When you make plans... You need to have the attitude that acknowledges that God's will is the best thing for you. That's submission to God. His will is good. His will glorifies Himself. I want to glorify Him, and so I want to do what's good for me because I believe that God's good is best, and so I'm going to submit my will to the Lord. And in Him, I'm going to trust Him. That even though I don't always get what I want, but I know that that's still the best thing for me. Now, those of you that walk with the Lord for a time, I praise God for no's, right? Things I've prayed about, and, and God has given me a no answer. And at the time, I was disappointed. But disappointment, disappointment is His appointment, right? He, he's done it for a reason. As you look back, you realize, oh, Lord, praise the Lord that you didn't answer that prayer because I can see now so much better than I could at the time. When I was clouded by my desires and my, my, my hopes and my dreams. You see, we, we, we go to God and we submit our attitudes to Him. We submit our wills to Him, knowing that what He has for us is best. He has our best interests at heart. But James says, look, if the Lord wills, we will live and we do this or that. It's, a, it's an understanding that God is sovereign. And that's why I've titled this sermon, Acknowledge the Sovereignty of God, because you understand that God controls all aspects of your life. Right? Joyous times and hard times, they are both from the Lord. James 1 says that, right? James, you guys remember way back? James chapter 1, verse 2, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. In other words, the, the things that happen in your life, they grow your faith. And as your faith grows, your endurance, your, your ability to handle more and more serious things grows. And that, that growth in our faith, what produces maturity So we recognize God's sovereignty because God's sovereignty is God has the right and He has the power to do all that He decides to do. That's God's sovereignty. Job 42.2, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. 
Ephesians 1.11, He works all things after the counsel of His will. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, who you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. God is sovereign over your life. He's Lord over your life. That's what you agreed to. When you believe in Christ, what we, we deny ourselves, take up our cross, and we follow Him. So James says, understand that God is sovereign, right? God can and will do what He desires in along for His glory and your good because He has your best interests at heart. What glorifies God, what glorifies God, excuse me, is good for you. And it's about trust. Ultimately, do we have faith to take our plans to the Lord, trusting that if He says no, it's still good. It's what's best. That's hard. I've actually heard people at times say that, well, I don't want to pray about this. It's usually the youth or the young adults, you know, have come, not, been, not been a believer very long, and I'll ask them a question, you know, have you prayed about this? Have you gone to the Lord about this situation? Well, I don't, what if God says no? Well, then that's good because you have an answer. But James says that we understand that God is sovereign, and he says, look, we live, if the Lord wills, we live and do also do this or that. First of all, we, we live. One of the things I, I teach my children as we pray, as I, I teach my, my daughter, my son, is we thank God for another day to live. Right? How presumptuous we at times. Right? We bring to, bring to God our prayers, and there's nothing wrong with that, and we thank God for all the things He's done, but we forget that He's actually giving, given us another day because the continuance of life is ever dependent upon God. He's numbered our days. I love George Whitfield's, and it also works the other way. I love George Whitfield's statement, we are immortal until our work on earth is done. Right? God has numbered our days. God gives life. He sustains life. And how precious life is. It's a vapor. You can see it. Those of you that have kids, been around kids, I mean, how quick do they grow up? Right? I mean, it just seems like a little while ago, my, my son was born and my daughter came along and now he's seven and she's almost five and it just, time flies. Life's a vapor. And I've shared this with some of the... Uh, Young, young couples in our, in our um, Tuesday night group, but you think about this way, and not to be melancholy, but you think about it this way. With kids, you really only get about, depending on how old they are, you only get about eight to ten Christmases where they really have that childlike joy, right? Because once they get into 12 and 13 years old, you know, it's, it's, it's just, you know, the attitude changes. They're more mature attitude, but you only get, you only get a certain number of years, certain number of opportunities. And we praise God for those things. So life is short. But James says, look, you do this or do that. You see, that's the providence of God. The providence of God is God sovereignly working out His will. God's acts of providence. We, we see that God sees that everything happens in this life happens as it should to bring about His will. 
So when circumstances happen to you, don't think of them as random occurrences and coincidences. You need to understand that when God brings people in your life, it's for a reason. When God says no, it's for a reason. When this happens to you, it's for a reason. Now, we might not understand those reasons at the time, but we need to be willing to say, Lord, I trust you. I'm dependent upon you. I submit to you knowing that what you have for my life is best. That's hard. But that's a mature attitude, trusting God even in, in the times when, when it's hard to trust Him, when, when quote-unquote bad things or sinful things happen to us. It's not easy. But guess what? God gives a greater grace. To go back and use James' words earlier in chapter 4. Just remember, nothing in your life happens by chance. It all comes from the Father's hand. Isaiah 46.10, I declare the end from the beginning and from long ago what is yet not done, saying, my plan will take place and I will do all my will. And you know what? Those prosperity preachers don't like that saying, right? By the way, if you say it's if the Lord wills, it's not like a little magical genie thing. Like God's like a cosmic genie. You're rubbing, you get what you want. Oh, if the Lord wills, we're going to do this. Let's go. Woo. Right? It's, it's a practical attitude of dependence. But those prosperity preachers hate that. I've got interesting, as I was looking at some of this, uh, Kenneth Hagin, Joyce Meyer, they, I've, I've read where they said if it, we shouldn't say if God wills in our prayers. Because for them, it's about name it and claim it. Right? If you want it, you just have to claim it. It's not about God's will. It's really what they're saying. It's about your will. Right? That's those prosperity preachers. Those heretics, basically, is what they are. They preach a false gospel. They don't preach the truth. So what comfort is this? Right? What confidence this is? As you live your life, you submit to God's, God's will. You submit to His sovereignty, and you know that He is working all things for your good. And then that good is your sanctification. You're, you're, you're to be like Christ as He's preparing you for your future home with Him in all eternity. And that sanctification process is hard at times. First Peter says we come to God as living stones. Well, you take a, a big piece of rock and what do you do? You have to mold that rock, shape that rock as you're building a building. Well, God's shaping and molding the things in your life, chipping away the things that He finds unacceptable. So James continues and he just says, look, you have to realize this attitude is sinful. Look in verse 16 and 17. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. Therefore, to the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. James goes back to their present attitude. After giving them the, the proper attitude, he goes back one more time and he says, Look, you need to understand, you need to realize that the, this attitude is evil. It's sinful. And they boast. They're taking pride in their, they're glorying in their attitude. They're sharing their plans with everybody. Here, look, look at what we're going to do. Look at all these plans we've got. They're drawing attention to these things and they're saying, look at this. And, and they're doing it repeatedly over and over. And what does James says? You, you're doing this in your arrogance. He's talking about the pride of life. It's, it's misplaced pride in themselves, their, their skills, their intelligence, their resources. Because they believed they were all they needed to be successful. Right? It's a danger for us. The thing that we can get by in our lives with our own intelligence, own smarts, our own resources, as if we weren't given these things. 
Proverbs 21, 31, the horse is ready for the day of battle, but the victory belongs to the Lord. Doesn't matter how big your army is, victory belongs to the Lord, right? For those of us that just finished studying Joshua, we saw that over and over, right? Look, the world around you tells you to esteem yourself. It tells you that in order to be successful, whether it's in business or in life, you have to be self-confident. And if you're not self-confident, that's why you fail. Now, we're not, we're not to ignore the principle of excellence. We do things excellently unto the Lord. We do things the best of our ability based on the knowledge and the skills that we have. doesn't mean we can't improve in those things. We worship to, to, to God's glory in an excellent way. We give God our best. But it's not about confidence in ourselves. And, and I can tell you that there's been endless business leadership books written that describe the, the self-confidence in, that we should have. We should depend on our, our resources and, and our intelligence and our networking as if that's all there is. Paul tells the Corinthians, and he emphasizes this, this true reality. He says, what do you have that you did not receive? Why do you boast? Because boasting in what you've done and what you've accomplished and your plans for the future without acknowledging Christ as the center of your life and as the reason behind it is the pinnacle of human pride. We do things in our life and it makes us feel good. And then what do we do? We draw attention to ourselves. That's sin. It's pride. It's arrogance, as James says. To fail to acknowledge God and thank Him for what He's done and failing to include Him in your future plans is arrogance. We need to be like the Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 6. But may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. James says not only is it is it sin in the sense that it's boasting and it's arrogance. He said it's evil, just in case you didn't catch that arrogance and pride is evil. James emphasizes it one more time. But he also emphasizes and he draws this down to a general principle in verse 17. Therefore, the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. This is the general principle. It's, this is the principle of sins of omission. We generally think about sin as something we do wrongly, right? We're, we're told not to steal and we steal. But failure to show mercy is still a sin. James's point here is failure to acknowledge God, failure, failure to include Him and seek His will is sin. You can't get away with saying, well, Lord, I really haven't done anything wrong. I haven't broken your law. But it's still a sin of omission. You see someone in need and you don't help them, it is still sin because guess what? You know the right thing to do. Just because you didn't go over there and kick them when they're down, but the fact that you didn't bother helping them is a sin of omission. And James is saying that here that, that this attitude, this presumptuous attitude is a sin of omission. It's a sin where you know what you should be doing. You should be seeking God's will in your life. You should have Him included in all aspects of your life, but you're not doing it. So it's sin. Because guess what? Your actions, once again, your actions show your faith. Goes back to James's original premise, his original point in the book of James. 
Right? So God, God is calling us to do the right thing, to, to give God the glory He deserves by acknowledging His hand in the past, in His sovereign hand, in all the providences of your life, and then going forward, He wants you to glorify Him by, by being dependent upon Him, submissive upon, to Him, seeking His will. Include Him in your life, brethren. That's what He wants. Most of you have heard of Lord Melbourne. After all, the city of Melbourne is named after him. He was prime minister of Great Britain in the 1830s. And one of the times I read about him, he says that he was coming out of a country church and he said, it's too bad. I've always been a supporter of the church and I've always upheld the clergy. But it is really too bad to have listened to a sermon like that we have heard this morning, why the preacher actually insisted upon applying religion to a man's private life. See, brethren, that's the real issue this morning. Does your faith in Christ intersect with your private life, your personal life, all aspects of your life? Right? Does it affect what you do outside of Sunday worship? Do you live in daily submission to Him? Do you acknowledge His sovereignty over your life, His lordship? Or are you a practical atheist? If unbelievers look at your life, would they see anything different? See, James has confronted these believers and he's told them to reject an attitude of presumption. He's told them to adopt an attitude of submission and realize that this attitude is sinful. So now you know. Now you know. You know you need to acknowledge God's sovereignty in all aspects of your life. Now you know that you can't live self-confidently, self-assuredly. Now you know. And now that you know these things, as James says, the one who knows the, knows the right thing to do and doesn't do it to him and his sin. But how comforting it is, brethren. How comforting it is And how confidence it gives us knowing that as we walk with the Lord, He has our best interests at heart. And we can't help but give Him glory as we submit to Him. Help us to give God the glory and take none for ourselves, right? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that it challenges us, convicts our heart of of all the areas that we like to take control of. We know that control is an illusion. And Lord, how comforting it is to know that we can, we can rest in your sovereignty. We rest in your hand knowing that you're going to work all things for our good. What confidence it gives us as we face tomorrow to know that no matter what happens, we're secure. We're secure in our salvation. We're secure in your love. Father, help us to take each day and and seek your will. Whether it's our jobs, our our holiday plans, our finances, our, our raising our kids, whatever it may be, Lord, help us to submit these to your will. Seeking and asking you to be a part of our lives in a far greater way. Lord, we give glory to you and thanks for the answered prayers in our lives, the times where we have submitted and we, we brought our, our hopes and our desires and our dreams and we, we've seen you answer those prayers. We give you glory for those public things. Father, we just love you. 
And we want to show our love by our devotion and our submission. Lord, help us to walk with you, to live each day under your lordship. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.